Welcome to The Cat Lady, the show where people opine about felines. I'm Lana, the Cat Lady, and each episode I invite a person I think is awesome to react about cats. Cat lover, cat hater, or cat agnostic? I'm curious what makes them tick. My guest today is an expert on the animals from what seems like every region of Australia. She's also using regenerative farming practices to increase biodiversity and produce fantastic cheese. You can learn more about Leap Farm on Kate's own podcast, The Curious Farmer. Kate is my final guest on this Cat Lady series, and she gives a great look at cats in a wild region of the world. I'm so glad that we could make this happen and finally get together. (laughs) Yes, a bit of toing and froing, but we got there in the end. So Kate, tell me, what's your first memory of a cat? Well, I think I must have been about five or six years old. And my parents had bought a rundown house. It's sort of like a bit of an investment property in a suburb just out of Melbourne called Carlton. And it was, um, Carlton had been, a, a the, the suburb grew out of um, the working class people. Uh, so there were small little houses, but really old brick houses and really, really gorgeous, beautiful little houses. Um, but it, it was an interesting area. So there were still quite a few people living in, this is in the early 80s, there were still quite a few people living in it who were quite disenfranchised, vulnerable people. Um, and so we'd go to this little rundown house and mum and dad had renovated it. And my sister and I would just, you know, muck about as kids do playing. And there was a tap and you turn on the tap and a redback spider would drop out. And a redback spider is really one of Australia's most venomous spiders. They, if they bite you, it hurts, but it doesn't, they can kill kids, but typically they don't, but it's just a nasty, nasty little spider. But we used to play with the redback spider in the tap outside. The next door neighbours, I found out as an adult, were um, uh, had substance use issues, and uh, but they were just the most gorgeous people, really kind people. And they had a, an alley cat, and she had some kittens and we used to go over there and knock on the door and they'd pull this cat in a box from under the bed and we'd just play with her four kittens. And one of those kittens became our first cat, a male tomcat. He was enormous. He was about a metre long when you stretched him out, just huge. And, we, you know, he was just this Carlton tabby cat. And he was rough as, and he used to beat my sister up. He'd hide behind doors and then he'd pounce out from behind and attack her around the ankles with his claws out. Um, But he was always good to me. (laughs) (laughs) What did you do differently? (laughs) I don't know. I, I think I probably didn't try to put him in a pram and push him around or anything like that. (laughs) Not my scene. Okay, so you're growing up in Australia. Did you continue collecting more animals? Like I was such an animal freak. I loved animals. So he was the first cat who was beating up my sister. I was more into dogs and so we also had a dog. So she and I used to hang out quite a bit. 
then we also had the fish and then we left Melbourne in the late 80s and moved over to Adelaide and when we were there we had um we had budgies, which are an Australian native bird. They live out in the desert and they generally fly in massive flocks. And the budgies were great. They were in an aviary and they were pretty wild, but they were breeding. And so as a 10, 11 year old, I was uh, selling baby budgies um, to the local pet shop and I was getting some great colors and stuff. Um, and that was going really well until this Carlton Alleycat, whose name was Bushy, would manage to work out how to get into the aviary and feast upon my budgies. Oh, oh no. <laughs> <laughs> I, you know, you laugh now, but. <laughs> uh, right, um, but as a kid, oh gosh. So when you first discovered that happening, what was the scene? Uh, I think my mom did a good job of kind of protecting us from that. Mm-hmm. Um, there were feathers. I remember a lot of feathers, gorgeous blue, yellow, green feathers oh. and not much else. And, and a, a greatly reduced head count. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> <laughs> and then my sister was sort of like, oh, I want my own cat because this cat beats me up and Kate's got the dog. So we ended up getting a second cat and that was a little ginger cat that she called Ginger Megs. Ginger Megs was um, a cartoon uh, that was published in Australia, probably in the 40s or 50s. And it was an Aussie larrikin kid who had ginger hair and his name was Ginger Megs. And so that comic kind of detailed all his antics and stuff, normal, you know, little kid sort of antics, a bit like Calvin and Hobbes, but more Australian. Mm-hmm. Anyway, so we had Megsy and uh, that was about it for a while. Then we moved back to Melbourne. We acquired another dog who was allowed to have puppies. Um, she was a purebred bred schnauzer. So she, she had these purebred puppies that we would hand raised from the moment they were born. So they were very, very well socialized, but all those puppies went to new homes. And then I got a tortoise. I don't even remember where the tortoise came from, but I acquired a tortoise. (laughs) That was sort of (laughs) my childhood collection of animals, a few dogs, a few cats, a tortoise, fish and budgies for a brief moment in time. (laughs) Well, and just to round things out, you know, I'm recording here in New York and a crow has settled outside my window, uh, determined to join our conversation. So I'm impressed that New York has birds in it. I am surprised that there is enough habitat for them to live in. Yeah. You know, in fact, it is one of the bird watching destinations, at least of the country. I'm not sure how it ranks Global. No, mm-hmm. no way. I would never have guessed that. Yes. Um, I mean, Central Park does have a lot of birds, but then there are also some various preserves in Staten Island, um, which is one of the boroughs, another borough, Queens um, in Jamaica Bay. There are some massive wildlife areas as well. 
And in fact, that was one of my uh, quarantine surprises when I went into lockdown and uh, as a pianist, I still had some assignments that I had to record. And so I was expecting, oh, you know, I'll just record all day. I'll have a couple of very intense recording sessions and I'll just get this out of the way. And, you know, because normally I was gone out of the house most of the day, I had no idea how loud the birds were outside my window because there's a green space shared by these two apartment buildings. And particularly in the morning, the crows go berserk. And so I only had a window of about two hours per day where the birds were silent and my building was silent. <laughs> but you would have had the birds so much more because of the lack of traffic, I guess. Exactly. Yes. It was wild. That might surprise people, but actually birdsong is a prominent feature of my life here, at least uptown, where there's certainly... Um, I think more just space and peace for the birds, but um, yeah, yeah, downtown as well. Yep, totally blown my mind. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, So you grew up with all of these animals. Did they influence your choice of work? Well, I always wanted to be a vet uh, because I just adored animals. I, um, I really, really, really wanted a lamb and a calf. Mm-hmm. for my 11th birthday and some chickens. And we lived in a suburban house, like a quarter acre block. There was a patch of grass about, oh, I don't know, it was tiny. It was this tiny patch of grass. And, you know, it was 6Ks from the CBD. So what's that, four miles from the central business district of Melbourne. Mm-hmm. So, you know, kind of inner city, but suburban. And... There was just no way that I was going to have a lamb or a calf. Mm-hmm. And then my mum looked into chickens. And back then in the 80s, it was or early 90s. The only way you could have a chicken was basically to keep it in the middle of the lounge room. And that obviously wasn't going to happen. So I didn't get my chook. I didn't get my lamb and I didn't get my calf. And I was devastated. Oh. Uh, absolutely determined to be a vet and was working really hard at school. Then I went to vet school for a day uh, as a bit of a, you know, try before you buy. And I just went, oh my goodness, I can't do this. Really? I don't want to be a vet. Hmm. I just oh. had a, I think I just had a really bad experience mm-hmm. rather than it's a bad thing to do. Mm-hmm. And so I sort of lost my mojo a bit. And at the time there was a civil war in Rwanda mm-hmm. and I learned about Médecins Sans Frontières and my mum suggested that maybe I should do that, become a doctor and do that. And I thought that was a brilliant idea. Mm-hmm. And so I studied hard and didn't get into medical school because it was undergraduate when I finished school. I didn't get into medical school, so I did a year of law school and then I performed well enough in that to be able to transfer into med school in Tasmania where I live now. Mm-hmm. And along the way, I kind of had some fabulous experiences. I got to do some work out, out in the Kimberley once I was, which is a really, really wild part of the world that's very sparsely populated in the northwest corner of Australia and amazing Indigenous culture, fantastic landscapes, just just fantastic part of the world. Then um, I finished med school and 
I'd met my husband in my final year of med school and we'd always talked about one day when we were old and we were winding down our careers, we'd buy a little farm somewhere. He got a postdoc in Darwin. So we went up to Darwin, which is the very center top of uh, Australia. So we went from the very bottom to the very top. So from 42 degrees south to 11 degrees south and a very different climate. And um, we were having a great time there. Uh, And then a buffalo farm was being shut down and we talked about how it'd be great to have buffalo so that we could make mozzarella and we sort of thought about how we could make it work and it just wasn't going to happen at that point and where we were financially and we sort of laughed about it and then after he finished that postdoc three years after you know after he started we went to Sydney and I finished off my specialty training in Sydney and I was working and he was doing his second postdoc where he was working with Antarctic and subantarctic uh, vertebrate marine animals, mostly mammals, mostly elephant seals, but also weddell seals and crab eater seals and penguins and snow petrels and cool stuff. He had the job that I think I really truly wanted, mm-hmm. but he was getting pretty frustrated with science and I hadn't found my niche in Sydney and we didn't like sitting in traffic. We were living with 20% of Australia's population, mm-hmm. but it, which isn't a very big population, but it felt very cramped yeah. to us after having been in Darwin and Tassie before that. And we just went, ah, oh, stuff this, let's start making cheese commercially after mm-hmm. we'd been making it in the kitchen at home. And we decided to make cheese commercially. We needed to guarantee milk supply. And to guarantee milk supply, we needed to have a farm. So we bought a farm. And we bought some cattle to put on it for beef. And we bought some tiny little wee baby goats, Uh uh, 18, we started off with. And we grew them up. And now eight years down the track, we're milking goats. We're in the spring, summer and fall or autumn, as we call it, and then we have winter off and we make cheese. So I still work as a, an emergency doctor and he is a full-time farmer and cheesemaker. So I call him a cheese farmer. He's a cheese farmer. <laughs> wow, it all came together. Yeah, it's a bit of a long story. <laughs> <laughs> but a marvelous one and it's making sense because when I first approached you about coming on the podcast, you said, well, can I talk about cats and also goats? I said, yes. sure. <laughs> goats, <laughs> goats are welcome. <laughs> you see, the thing about Australia is that cats are a little unwelcome, especially when you live in the country, uh-huh. because we have a massive feral cat issue in our country. Yeah. So these are cats that are domestic cats that have escaped or been abandoned And they're left intact a lot of the time and they breed. And unfortunately, cats do what cats do. Like our cat got into my budgie cage. Um, The cats hunt and kill the wild marsupials. So we've had huge rates of extinction of small mammals, secondary to cats, foxes, uh, wild dogs, There are a whole lot of other feral species like camels and donkeys are creating really big problems in Central Australia and Northern Australia. And we've got a massive issue with feral pigs as well. So cats are kind of not 
one of Australia's most favourite introduced species. <laughs> I think we all hate rabbits more, though. <laughs> Did you say feral camels? Yes. <laughs> okay. So now you're blowing my mind. Can you have to tell really? me more about this? Oh my camels. goodness! Camels, as in the large animal with humps. Yes, dromedaries. Yes. Well, <laughs> most of Australia is desert, uh-huh. and so. Uh, in the 1800s, when the colonial settlers were exploring the land, they needed to get across the desert. And so there were cameliers from Afghanistan that came out to Australia with their camels and they would trek across the desert because, of course, they're the perfect animal to explore the desert of Australia. Yeah. So... We had uh, a lot of camels for that reason. And then, you know, what happens? They're not needed anymore because it's the end of the trip. So they just let them go rather than have to deal with them. And then they breed and breed and breed. So did you know that there are more camels in Australia than any other continent or country in the world? I absolutely did not. <laughs> oh my and, most of, and most of them are feral So most of them are just wild, wild camels, um, kind of maybe destroying the ecology a little bit, probably more than a little bit. That is amazing. So we export camels to the Middle East. So a lot of people go and round them up and put them on boats and we export them to the Middle East, Mm -hmm. which I, I think that's bizarre. There's so much history here in Australia for such a young country, Mm -hmm. um, by uh, when I say young country, I mean from a uh, a written history perspective. But of course, Australia's history is sixty thousand years old. Mm-hmm. It's just that that history is an oral, traditional history from our indigenous people. Mm-hmm. Yeah, how did that time? You mentioned the culture. Was it up north? You said you, said uh, you were able to spend. Some oh time yeah, in the Kimberley. North- yeah. yeah, yeah. How did your time in the Kimberley affect when you came back to the region where your farm is now, or even just how you think about Australia and its animals? Um, that was really interesting. I was working in public health uh, when I was up in the Kimberley as a student, so I was a volunteer, and I was going out to a lot of the communities of the Indigenous people and spending time there, sometimes spending a couple of weeks in their community and getting to know them and um, seeing the conditions that they lived in, which were often very poor. And this was, this was a long time ago now. This was 20-odd years ago. So I think there wasn't the dialogue in Australia that there exists today. And when I came back, I was very, I can remember having something that you could only describe as reverse culture shock. Mm -hmm. So I came back from living in these very wild, very open places with incredibly beautiful people who were living in very difficult circumstances and amazing skies and um, fantastic people. It wasn't all brilliant, of course, nothing ever is. But I remember coming back to Melbourne 
and then going to Sydney for New Year's Eve and watching $22 million worth of money being blown up as fireworks and being so utterly disturbed at my country's priorities when there were people that were needing financial support to be able to, well, the word, the words that we use today is close the gap between health outcomes. So on average, an Indigenous Australian will die 17 years earlier than a non-Indigenous Australian. Um, health literacy, uh, just literacy and numeracy rates are, are much worse. It's the same story as you hear for all Indigenous people mm-hmm. around the world. And it's um, it, it horrifies me where some of our priorities in our in, in the countries that we live in lie um, where basic human rights are not met for some of our people, particularly our Indigenous people. Can we go back to cats? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm hearing the compassion that you had for animals and the empathy and real insight that you brought with you in your travels is remarkable. Have, have you encountered people who dislike animals or take a completely different look at them? And what do you say to them? My father-in-law isn't that great with animals. And he lives three Ks up the road from us now and helps out with our six-year-old and four-year-old quite a lot. Um, but he's not a, a huge fan of animals. And he his response is to... You know, if there's a frog, he'll run a mile. Uh, spiders are to be killed, whereas we'll pick up a spider and put it outside. Um, we have snakes that go through our yard in the summertime. They're venomous snakes, but they're just moving through. So you just let them go and you teach the dog and you teach the kids to respect the animals and to stay away. But you can look because we're all very interested, but you respect them and let them move through. And so he, he's kind of fairly anti-animal, but he's constantly trying to tame nature and control nature. So he clips his beautiful wild trees into these incredibly tight shapes. And I think that that is just such a metaphor for, for his attempt to control nature around him and I think that's why he's not a huge fan of animals because to him they're unpredictable and they um they're scary as a result because he can't control them and so there's really nothing I can say Mm -hmm. um to people like that I just look at the way they think about nature and I look at the way farmers often think about nature as well now that we are farmers as well and how farming modern agricultural practices are all about controlling nature whereas regenerative farming practices tend to be more about working or partnering with nature and it's really interesting as humans we've always tried to control our landscape control um, everything around us to and and it's impossible and I think we're (laughs) we've worked it out with a big thump to earth in 2020 (laughs) that we don't have control right yeah 
tell me more about regenerative farming and, and how that changed your mindset. Um, well, in trained as an ecologist um, when he was at university and in his postdocs, and he was actually lecturing in regenerative agricultural practices, you know, taking an agroecological perspective of farming uh, went before he, he quit his academic career. And I've been learning about it probably through him and just looking at the industrial, industrial agricultural or factory agricultural farming practices and thinking how wrong it is. Mm -hmm. And we chose to farm a very different way. It's a very labor intensive way and it's a very small farm and we produce boutique products. We don't produce masses of food to feed masses of people. And that's not what we're about, but we do feed many, many families with our meat products as well as our cheese. But I guess that what I've learnt more recently about farming is that there are ways that we can mitigate against climate change by trapping carbon in soil. So we have a lot of soil. We're losing soil hand over fist with our modern industrial agricultural practices. And if we keep farming this way, we've got 60 years of soil left and then it will all be gone. So we have to stop farming this way and we have to start farming in a way that builds soil and builds capacity. And, and we can do this through the use of livestock in particular. Um, not all farmland is able to be cropped and we definitely need livestock to help us to be able to farm in, into the future because the livestock produce manure. Yes, they also produce some methane, but they're not producing any more methane than what was being produced, you know, 400 years ago when we had massive herds of bison mm -hmm. and other ruminants on the planet. Mm -hmm. Biological methane also breaks down in the atmosphere within a decade. I think it's eight years, but I'm not certain of that as opposed to the methane that's produced by fossil fuels, which sticks around forever. So not all methane is created equal is what apparently the scientists tell me anyway. Mm -hmm. So we've got to look to ways of using our animals so that they have good lives, pastured lives, doing what they're supposed to be doing while we build carbon in our soil to be able to replenish our soils so that we can continue to survive as a species. Mm -hmm. That's basically where my interest in regenerative farming came from. Mm -hmm. Daunting, but also hopeful. Oh, it's incredibly hopeful. It's yeah. the one thing that gives me a lot of hope um, when I look at the environmental degradation that mm -hmm. our species is wreaking on the the planet. I was thinking about the, the massive plastic island yeah. of, of detritus in the Pacific the other day and trying to think out how we could fish it out mm -hmm. and stop more from getting in there and thinking about our stocking density in terms of human mouths um, compared to the mouths of all the other creatures. Um, and I get a little saddened and then I think about how if we do learn how to farm better than maybe 
this isn't a problem um, that needs to continue, that we can actually do so much to stop climate change. But we, I mean, the thing is we have to do it right now. There isn't time to do it later. Mm -hmm. Are these ideas and attitudes commonly shared where you're at or is is this sort of a niche endeavor um so there were, were definitely some early adopters uh for a long period of time and i think we've moved past the early adopters and it's becoming more and more mainstream mm-hmm. um there are more and more initiatives Uh, Our biggest problem in Australia is our government refuses to acknowledge that climate change is real. Um, They're they're mapping out a road to recovery from the pandemic and the advisors that they have on their board all come from the coal and gas industry. And so they see that... um, investing into more fossil fuel manufacture in Australia is a way to drag us out of the recession that we're in as a result of the pandemic. And they're not putting, and it's not that they, that it's, how can I explain this? I don't think it's poorly intentioned, but I mean, the people that are talking and having the conversation with the leaders in our government uh, don't have the diversity of experience or thought that their experience and their money is tied up in fossil fuels and iron ore, for instance. Mm -hmm. And so that's what they see is the answer. And our government hasn't sought to seek out other views from what I can ascertain anyway. And I think this is incredibly concerning. And the Australian public, it's gaining more and more momentum to demand a climate solution from the government, but they just sort of seem to keep ploughing on and they've done some awful things under the state of emergency that the pandemic has put in place Mm -hmm. to be able to pass certain bits of legislation without adequate uh, scrutiny by the opposition. Well, I feel I, this is very depressing, I wish, Lana. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I wish that I could, on the other side of the world, that things are different, but I feel this is something our species is bound together with, this massive problem. And It is. Um, yeah. And I don't understand why, as a species, we're not doing more. Like, the longer we leave it, the more expensive it gets. So right. even for the more conservative, fiscal-minded individuals and um, uh, organizations, it makes way more sense to do something about it now than reap the benefit for another five years and then totally fuck us all over. <laughs> Am I allowed to say that? Oh, yes, you are. This is a rated E podcast. Ex- it is now. <laughs> I love how you were able to take your childhood story of cats and pull us into the history of our species and the future of existence. That is, that is quite a talent. (laughs) Can I tell you about goats? Yes. (laughs) Goats all have different personalities. Oh my goodness. They're kind of a bit like dogs in that they're so recognizably different. So I can tell you all our goats have names. So I can tell you, 
which goat is which from her behaviour. My husband and Erin, who's like a family member but an employee as well, can tell you which goat is which by the shape of her udder and I can pick most of their faces at certain times of the year. So I'm, I'm not around them all year round because of work and small children and other obligations. But in the springtime, when I'm spending heaps of time with them, I know exactly who's who by the look on their face. <laughs> they are hysterical. They are so funny. I love them. Except for the ones that I don't get on with. We, there are some goats that I have a personality clash with uh-huh. and the different people in our operation will have different clashes with different goats. <laughs> <laughs> and remind Based me how many person. you have again. Oh, it kind of depends. So we've got about 85 adult girls at the moment who are pregnant. Uh-huh. We've got about seven to eight that aren't pregnant who we keep on as aunties. Mm-hmm. We've got five boys, five boys. Yeah. We've got five boys that are intact so they're our bucks, they're our breeding daddies, our goat daddies. <laughs> <laughs> and I love it. Continue. Yeah. <laughs> so do the girls, but yep. anyway. <laughs> um, and then we've got last year's babies. And I think we've got about 30 to 50 of those guys left, girls and boys. Mm-hmm. And then we've got the new babies on the way. They'll start to arrive in about three weeks' time. Okay. And we're expecting about 160. Wow. 160 little babies. Oh, oh my I'm gosh. so excited. Oh. <laughs> I'm exhausted. But oh, I'm no excited. kidding. I'm thinking the, the caretaking in those early weeks must be. Well, we leave them with their mums. Uh-huh. So there's a lot of. Um, just making sure that the birth is going okay, making sure that their first few days are okay, looking after the mums because they produce lots of milk at about day three. Their milk comes in mm-hmm. and then the babies are tiny so they don't need much milk, but the girls have got heaps of milk. So we end up milking them twice a day for a short period of time and then we go back to once a day, leave the kids with the mums, separate them at night and then we take the milk in the morning some of the milk we feed back to the, the kids in the morning just so that we tame them up and get them lovely and used to us and think that we're all wonderful because we give them a tiny bit of milk. <laughs> and then after the girls have been milked on the machine, they match up with their babies and they feed their babies because they've still got a little bit of milk left in their udder. And then they all go out into the paddock for a nice day. Yeah. And then they come home at night and the whole process starts again. Yeah. So it's, it's really good fun. Yeah, it sounds wonderful. (laughs) Well, so I usually ask at the end, if you were at a cat conference, how would you introduce yourself? But I I feel like it's only fair to include goats in this as well. So if you were at a cat conference, how would you introduce yourself? And would that change if you were at a goat conference? Oh, if I, I don't think I'd go to a cat conference. (laughs) But honest, yeah, yep, totally honest. I'm just not sure I really want to hear from them. Yeah, I'm I'm just really not into what they have to say because I think it'd all be about me, 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 and we all know it's not about them, it's about me, (laughs) which is why you would be at the goat conference. (laughs) 
yeah, exactly. And I'd introduce myself as, hi, my name's Kate. I'm a goat midwife. Perfect. And they would welcome you with open arms. Yeah. In the spring, it'd be open something else. <laughs> it's definitely E-rated. <laughs> <laughs>